Well, over the last few weeks, we have been looking at this theme of honor found in Paul's letter to Timothy. Timothy, an apostolic delegate, was left in Ephesus uh, to set in order the things that Paul, the apostle of the Lord, was instructing and teaching that young church. For sure, there were leaders there, but Timothy had the unique uh, challenge of dealing with some wonky stuff that was happening in churches. Now, if you've been in churches at any, for any length of time, you know some wonky stuff happens there, right? You know there's some kooky stuff that takes place. You know some things happen, some things are said, there's relationship challenges and difficulties because, after all, we are sinners. Sinners saved by grace, no doubt, but sinners nonetheless. So things are going to happen, so Timothy has got to set some of those things in order. And in this portion of Timothy, he's talking about groups of people that need to be honored in the church. We looked at a couple of weeks ago that widows who are truly widows should be honored, should be shown honor. And that honor meant that not, that not only to be respected, but they're also to be financially supported. If they have no other means, it is the church who's to take care uh, of this particular group of widows. And these widows who had the ability and capacity would be great ministers in the church of Jesus Christ. Therefore, they should be financially supported. Last week, week we looked at another group that needs to be honored in the church, and that is elders. Elders who rule well. The elders would be the church leaders, the pastors, the bishops, the overseers of the church. And those who rule well, those who labor in preaching and teaching, Paul writes that they should be considered worthy of double honor. So now we come to another group that Paul is going to address and give specific instructions to on whom they should be honoring. And that's what I mentioned just a short while ago. Slaves showing honor and considering their masters worthy of being shown honor by them. And this is a challenging subject. It's a difficult one to address. The subject of slavery, number one, is a hot-button issue, to be sure. And this aspect of what God's Word has to say concerning slavery, or what God's Word doesn't say concerning slavery is something that has been argued about and something that's been contentious for, very, uh, for many centuries. So it's, it's not something new that we're going to hit on today. And uh, I know many of you have probably had conversations with people, and uh, one of the rebuttals they come to about why we should even believe the Bible is because of what they think God's Word says about slavery. Or how many of you have heard people say, well, doesn't the Bible condone slavery? Doesn't the Bible say it's okay to own slaves? You've heard that. Those would be erroneous and wrong assumptions by people who've probably never read the Bible. But nevertheless, the Bible does say some things concerning the treatment of slaves that leave us kind of at times wondering. So we're going to touch on those today. There's no way this can be an exhaustive treatment of that subject. And when we read these two verses, you're going to see why it would be something that is uh, troubling for us to understand 2,000 years removed from when this was first written to these believers in the church at Ephesus. Um, we know that today's passage was used by many Christians in our nation's sordid history with slavery as a defense and justification for why it was okay to own slaves. People twist scriptures for their own nefarious reasons and means, and these scriptures certainly have been twisted um, for some heinous 
things and sins in our nation's history. So we are by no means excusing those things because those people were wrong. And there are some theologians that I deeply respect in many of the ways they've interpreted Scripture. But when it comes to this topic, they couldn't be more wrong. Right? So uh, that's something we need to understand. So we're going to take a little time to understand uh, slavery in the Greco-Roman world of the time of the writing of this letter to the people that Paul was addressing. Right? So we're going to look at that, some things that the Old Testament says concerning slavery, some passages in the New Testament concerning slavery. Uh, we'll walk through those two verses and the instructions that Paul is giving slaves in relation to their masters, and then we will draw some application for us today. How do these things matter to us today? What do they mean to us today, and how would we apply these to our lives. So we've got a lot of work to do, and we know it's Father's Day, and you've got maybe reservations at the restaurant, so we'll try to get you out of here before three. <laughs> Let's turn to the word of the Lord. Hear the words of the living God, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Teach and urge these things. These are the words of the Lord. And one of the most important things that we can and have to understand when we approach these New Testament passages concerning servants and masters is understanding the people that this was written to. Understanding the culture of the, this ancient Greco-Roman world. At the beginning of the year, we did a series on learning how to interpret God's word. And one of the principles of interpretation of Scripture is that we need to understand that these things were written to a particular people. They were written to them. They contain necessary things for us, but they weren't written to us in our time, in our unique situations in, in human history. It was written to them. So we need to understand what this looked like in this ancient Greco-Roman world that Paul is writing these instructions to. We want to be good interpreters of Scripture. This is how these kind of things have gone awry in the world when we, we extract these passages and just go straight to application. What does it mean to me today? Well, that's not how we interpret Scripture. This is an ancient text. This is an ancient book. So to extract those principles, we need to first understand what it meant to this group of people in their unique time in human history. When we read these passages, however, the challenge is we automatically import our Western history of slavery. We import our understanding, or lack of understanding at times, of the transatlantic slave trade into this interpretation of this passage. So immediately when we read this, things conjure up into our minds. Maybe movies we've seen, history that we have read, all of the atrocities that were committed right, uh, to slaves here in our country and on the African continent and certainly in Europe. And I don't know about you, I remember reading passages like this and I was left wondering, why on earth doesn't God's word address this? Why doesn't God's word immediately say, this is wrong, this is evil, and immediately call for the abolition of slavery? 
Why doesn't Paul, instead of giving instructions here, slaves on how they ought to treat their masters and deal with their masters, why doesn't he automatically say, stop this evil, free all the slaves, be done with this evil institution? But we don't find that in the apostolic writings. We don't see that in these New Testament passages. So for Christians, this is an uneasy topic, and you can see why many out there in the world say, well, look at what the Bible says about slavery. That can't be a good thing. We know it's evil, and we know it's wrong. So let's walk through a few things in the Old Testament and the New Testament that just kind of gives us a little bit more rounded understanding of what God's Word has to say concerning slavery, and then we'll deal uh, with this passage today. One of the things immediately when you go through Scripture, you will not find a universal prohibition of slavery in the Old Testament. You're just not going to find that there. But there are to be no slaves. We know from the beginning of earliest recorded human history that this aspect of slavery and people owning slaves and having slaves were there. In fact, early on in Genesis, Genesis chapter 17, we see the mention there of household slaves and those born as slaves into someone's household. We see it early on. Of course, we have the great story of Exodus, right? The the great deliverance of God's people, the Hebrews, from bondage and slavery in Egypt. A a story that is a a type of the kind of deliverance uh, from the slavery that God's people have found themselves into the slavery of sin and how God has brought them out of that into freedom in Christ Jesus. It's a wonderful story. So we see the deliverance from slavery in that passage. Um, we see in the Mosaic Law that it included the humane treatment of slaves and it regulated slavery in order to prevent abuse and mistreatment of slaves. That's enshrined in the law of God in the Old Testament. The law of Moses, uh, the Mosaic Law, the law of God and the commandments there actually condemned man-stealing. That is, kidnapping an individual and actually forcing them into slavery. It was a capital crime. It was... It was punished by death. You can read that about that in Exodus 21 and Deuteronomy 24. Uh, we find in Scripture, in Exodus chapter 21, that there was voluntary servitude that Israelites could enter into in order to pay off debts. But this was not slavery in perpetuity. It was only to be for a period of six years. At the seventh year, they needed to be set free from their debts. And though protections were put in place... Uh, And these things are found in the Mosaic Law, and we see these things in the Old Testament. One thing I can say with certainty is that we do not see slavery considered or taught as part of God's created order. We do not see it as God's will for mankind. It is a product of the fall. We know that God, everything God created, he said, was good. The world God made was good. The perfection of the garden that man was set into was good. But sin corrupted all of this. So this slavery is just an outworking of the sin of mankind. But it is not God's part, part of God's perfect design for humanity. In the New Testament, we find Paul, right at the beginning of this letter in 1 Timothy chapter 1, condemning those who steal another man and force them into slavery. He condemns what he calls enslavers there in 1 Timothy chapter 1. A letter in your Bible is actually written to a slave order, a slave owner, Philemon, or Philemon Yon, if you're hungry, you call him that. 
Some of you, <laughs> some of you say Philemon, but it's Philemon. And that short letter there is actually written to a slave owner. We find Paul writing to him. Now, Philemon was an elder, most likely, of the church at Colossae. Okay? Because it says even there that there was a church that met at his house. So isn't that crazy to think of what? There was a slave owner who's a Christian, an elder of a church, a church met at his house, and he's a slave owner? Yeah. That's who he's writing to. And Paul's writing to him to appeal on behalf of a runaway slave, one of his slaves who had left, Onesimus. And at some point he encountered Paul and came to faith in Christ and began to serve in ministry together with Paul. And then Paul's writing to him to appeal to him. And there's, in fact, a portion of there where, where he's writing to him. And he's saying that he is sending Onesimus back to Philemon because something about their relationship had changed. And what had changed is that now they're brothers in Christ. Though he was a slave and still is by all rights, he's now his brother in Christ. So he's appealing that he's sending him back. In fact, he, he loves Onesimus so much, he says that he is sending his very heart back. Why that's profound, that relationship that Paul had with him. So, so he's trusting that Philemon will do the right thing, right, when he sends Onesimus back to him because the gospel had changed their relationship. The gospel radically transforms relationships so that slaves and masters become brothers. This is one of the most profound realities that we see in the New Testament that certainly militates against this idea of slavery and and those being slave owners, even though there isn't an outright condemnation of it. Ephesians and Colossians both give exhortations to masters in the proper treatment of slaves, which we will look at shortly. Uh, And in Galatians 3, Paul writes that all are one in Christ, such that there is neither slave nor free. That's a quick sampling. There are so many other passages relating to this. But the point I want you to have is that this whole concept, this Western concept we have uh, of slavery and our understanding of it, which included man-stealing on the African continent by their own people, this subjecting them to the the cruelty of this, this voyage at sea under unimaginable and inhumane uh, conditions and treatment, and then selling them as chattel uh, in Europe and the Americas directly violates the law of God. You cannot read these passages and come away thinking that God is for this. You can't come away from these passages and say that this is God's design for humanity. And though scripture is twisted by many to support slavery, we reject that God's word teaches full support of slavery. Amen? Amen. All right. So let's quickly look at some of the major differences uh, from our understanding of slavery in in our nation's history uh, and and then slavery in the Greco-Roman world, because I think you'll quickly see some major differences. By the time of Paul's writing of this letter to Timothy in the first century, Roman law was such that it provided certain protections for slaves. It improved the treatment of slaves dramatically and even provided a means by which slaves could earn or obtain their freedom. Now this is huge because we know that's not necessarily the case when we understand the transatlantic slave trade and slavery here in our country. Uh, History records that almost 50% of Roman slaves were freed before the age of 30. So this was not a lifelong sentence, okay? 
Uh, it's estimated, and this is an important fact here, that a third of the population in the Roman Empire were slaves of some sort, were in some type of servitude. We're talking 50 to 60 million people at one time were slaves. That's massive. At the height, when we think of actually the, the entire scope of the transatlantic sur, uh, slave trade, we're talking about 12 to 15 million people in several hundred years of human history. At one time in the Roman Empire, there were 50 to 60 million slaves. You can imagine how big a deal this was in the Greco-Roman world of that time. Slavery was so intertwined with the economy of the Greco-Roman world that if it was immediately abolished, it would have had catastrophic results. Catastrophic poverty for both masters and slaves. It would have decimated uh, the empire completely. In the Roman world, people were in some type of servitude largely for economic reasons. Okay? That's an important distinction that we need to understand. For some, slavery was preferred over freedom. Why? Because their very survival was at stake, right? It offered a security that they may not have had as free men. So they would voluntarily enter into some type of servitude to make sure that they ate, to make sure that they had a roof over their head. In most cases, people entered into voluntary servitude to pay off debts. Some did that because they wanted to learn a trade. This was a way they were, in essence, uh, apprenticed to someone to learn a valuable trade that eventually they could use to earn a living and obtain freedom for themselves and some type of security. And again, economic survival. Most slaves were considered members of a household. So they had a lot of rights and privileges that biological members of a household had. Not all, not completely, but they had some. And that afforded them some type of security. They enjoyed a certain level of freedom that did not exist as we understand slavery in our time or in our recent past. And they enjoyed a certain level of social mobility. In fact, they were regularly afforded the social status of their masters. They weren't considered slaves. If their, if their masters had some type of uh, elite social status, these slaves were considered to, to be of that kind of status as well, even though they were properties of a slave owner. Many earned a living and worked in partnership with their owners. Some held positions of authority in businesses. Uh, some held positions of authority in certain levels of government. And many of them worked in highly skilled occupations. You would find teachers, educators, even doctors who were, in all essence, slaves. They were slaves who owned slaves themselves. They were slave owners themselves, even though they were in servitude themselves. And they were allowed to own property. They were allowed to save. They were allowed to invest so that they could later on obtain or purchase their freedom. Wouldn't you say that's a little bit different? I don't want to paint a rosy picture like all was awesome in the Roman Empire. That's, that's not my point in, in addressing that and bringing those things about. If you were, I, I know it wouldn't have been rosy for the people in servitude, okay, who had to pay off debts and be enslaved to others, but we have to think about the times, we have to think about the economic situation of that time and what was happening in the Greco-Roman world that they lived in. So this is different to slavery in Europe and America. 
The slavery we, we know of was inherently racist. It denied the full dignity and value of God's image bearers, which is atrocious, okay? Kent Hughes, now to answer the question here of why didn't the apostolic writers just largely come out and condemn and attack uh, slavery and the institution of slavery and call for its abolition, he gives four reasons here um, why they might have uh, not done that. And we can draw some of these from Scripture. Some of these may be just drawing assumptions from cultural and political uh, aspects of that time. But here are the four reasons he writes in his commentary concerning why God's word doesn't come out and condemn it. Number one was the positive reforms I already mentioned in regard to Roman slavery. These were already in effect as of the time of the writing of all of the apostolic letters. This would have been known to them. Things were improving. Contrary to what race baiters and race hustlers say in our day, Things are better in our country. Perfect? No. Long way to go? Absolutely. But we're not where we were in the 1800s. Okay? Whether you believe that or not, that's on you. I think the thing is the same thing here. Things were changing in the Roman Empire at that time. Okay? There was light at the end of the tunnel, though it was still a horrific thing that they were going through. The second thing is this. Uh, to attack the institution... Again, that was so intertwined and so essential to, Roman, to the Roman economy would have labeled Christianity as a subversive religion. You want to see Christianity shut down quickly? Uh, slave uprisings were quickly shut down in the Roman Empire. Okay? They were almost unheard of. There were some large ones, but they were quickly uh, smothered out. So for them to come out and attack this institution... Uh, would have labeled Christianity immediately as a subversive religion. Even though it was in other ways, uh, this was not the tact that the apostolic writers took. Not to mention that the immediate demise of the institution would have reduced everyone to poverty. Okay? It would have been a huge humanitarian issue. Uh, third, the spiritual reform brought about by the gospel was the primary preoccupation of the apostolic writers. The spiritual reform, not the political reform, not the social reform, but the spiritual reform. This is why you don't find Jesus calling for the overthrow of Rome. This is why you don't find the apostolic writers calling for the overthrow uh, of Roman rule. What was, the, what was the concern? The human heart. That the gospel transforms people. Transform people, in turn, will transform society but the main concern, their main concern, was, uh, was the gospel of Jesus Christ, that advancing. And as people came to faith in Christ, as they were changed, they, would, they, would, they in turn would bring about the desired things we, of course, all want to see in society uh, and in governance. Okay? Um, and then fourth, the radical message of equality that is explicit in the gospel would eventually bring about the demise of slavery. Right? As more people come to faith in Christ and live with that understanding that Christ is the great equalizer, there is no slave or free in Christ, we are one in him. Well, eventually, as that took root, things would change. Uh, and we could say that that is the kind of impact Christianity has had on the world. With its failures, with its foibles, uh, with its sins, with its faults, Christianity has done more to end slavery in developing nations uh, than any other institution, even though there's still more to do. 
And so we can look at this and go, well, this is something that's happened in the past, but uh, the reality is that slavery is just as bad, if not worse today, than it has ever been. Not, not like we understood it, not how it happened in the history of our nation, but modern-day slavery is a horrific reality experience in our world today. There are more slaves in the world today than in any other time in human history. And we're like, how can that be? But it's true. There's estimated there are over 50 million people trapped in some form of modern-day slavery. From human trafficking, sex trafficking, forced labor, child labor, it is a big deal. It is a heinous sin that still exists. Uh, I put a link um, on the sermon notes there to the Global Slavery Index by the Walk Free Organization so you can see some of those statistics. Um, It's horrifying to think about it, right? So this isn't just something that's in our past. There are these realities. There's continued exploitation today of many. Um, So I wanted to give you that kind of background and that understanding as we come to these two short verses uh, today. I'm going to use the terms slaves or um, uh, bond servants interchangeably. I'll say masters and slave owners. They're interchangeable terms. Uh, But I want you to resist the tendency, the natural tendency we have to think about slavery from our context and understand it from this context because it's important, especially as we come to draw application from this. And again, I will say it one last time. I am by no means trying to portray Greco-Roman slavery as some ideal picture. It was not. Nor making light of the atrocities of slavery in our nation. Okay? Enough said. Let's move on here. All right. First of all, let's look at verse 1. As Paul gives instruction to slaves who are in servitude to unbelieving masters. He writes, let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Now he says, let all. Who is he writing to here? This letter, who is he writing to? Now he's writing to Timothy, but where was this letter going to be read? In the church, specifically here at the church at Ephesus, and then of course in churches beyond Ephesus. So he's writing to believers. He's writing to church members. He is writing to church members who are actually slaves, who are in some type of servitude. I've already said about a third of the population in the Roman Empire of this day and age were slaves. So how many people at the church of Ephesus do you think were slaves? Would it be safe to say about a third, most likely? third? of the congregation, think about a third of the people in this room that you would be sitting and worshiping with may have been in servitude in some degree, shape, or form there at the church at Ephesus, okay? Um, And also, that meant that there were also members of the church who were most likely slave owners. We already talked about potentially an elder at the church at Colossae who was a slave owner. So the, the church consisted of both slaves and slave owners. That would make for a rather awkward um, situation, wouldn't it? It'd be kind of weird. Some of you might feel weird if your boss was sitting in the church with you. And that's not the dynamic. Uh, you might feel like a slave, but you're not, okay? Like that, okay? And so it'd be kind of awkward, you know, to be seeing them across the room. And, and they're worshiping and hearing the same things you are. And maybe at work, one or both of you or the other 
acts a little less Christian than they do at church. All right? Things would be a little awkward. Paul is directing these exhortations to all who are under a yoke as bondservants. That word bondservant, doulos in the Greek, we translate as bondservant. Some places can be translated as slave or servant. Uh, but it is with that understanding that we drew from Greco-Roman culture and how we are to understand what kind of slavery or servitude is in view here. Okay, So these exhortations for those who are under that kind of yoke. What is a yoke? Right? The, the yoke was the crossbar put on oxen so that they could pull together to do the work that they had to do. They were said to be yoked together. And this is the kind of imagery that's in view here. A slave is yoked to their master. They're bound to their master. They are a bond servant. Okay. Now that term, bond servant, is a term that Paul was very fond of using, referring to himself. Several of the letters in his greeting, right there in the first verse, he doesn't just refer to himself all the time as an apostle of the Lord. He actually refers to himself as a slave or bondservant of Christ Jesus. This is how he saw himself. He's a servant of Christ, a bondservant of the Lord. And in fact, all who are in Christ are bondservants of the Lord uh, as well. But he referred to himself that way many, many times. Now, in both verse 1 and 2, the slaves that Paul is uh, writing these instructions to our believers, but their context is different. There are some slaves who serve unbelieving masters, and then there are slaves or Christians who actually are serving believing masters, masters who are also Christians. So that's why there's two separate sets of instructions in verse 1 and 2, and he's not exactly saying the same thing in both categories, though they both can apply to each other. And we'll look at that here closely in a moment. Paul writes here that those who are, uh, who are under this yoke as bondservants are to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. Regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. That word honor means to respect. A little bit difference here is he's, in view here is not also financial support. It's more that whole idea of reverence and respect. They are to treat them and consider them as worthy of all honor. And that might be hard to swallow. It may have been very hard for these, uh, these in servitude to hear instructions like this and like, are you out of your mind, Paul? Do you know what this person does to me? Do you know how this person treats me? Do you know how I'm seen? He says, yeah. Regard your own masters as worthy of all honor. Even though these masters were not believers. The expectation is that a believing bondservant was going to treat their masters with respect and honor because they consider them to be worthy of respect and honor. And in Paul's instructions here, which is really a command, right? It, this, is, this is an imperative, the way it's written in the original language here. The ex, there's no condition placed upon how the bondservant is treated by their master, and that somehow should factor in to consideration as to whether or not he is going to honor his master or not. He doesn't say, hey, if your unbelieving master treats you well, consider them worthy of all honor. 
If your unbelieving master treats you with dignity and respects you first, then they are to be considered worthy of all honor and respect. That's not the instruction that's given here. Slaves are to honor their masters irrespective of treatment, irrespective of the work conditions they might find themselves under. It's a difficult, difficult exhortation. But why? What's the motivation for that? To endure maybe possibly mistreatment and abuse at the hands of their masters and still consider them worthy of being respected and honored. Well, he tells us here, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. There is a missionary motivation behind this instruction. There is an evangelistic emphasis and imperative as to why believing slaves should honor their masters. What kind of witness would a believing bondservant be to their master? You profess Christ, though you're in servitude, though you are a slave, before your unbelieving master, are you a faithful witness of Christ or are you a poor one? Do you testify faithfully to the gospel by virtue of your life and conduct? Are you a poor example of what it means to follow Christ? So if slaves were to show dishonor and disrespect to their masters, they would inevitably bring reproach on the name of the Lord and on apostolic teaching, on the word of the Lord. Now, in that culture, the the, the faith of the master typically determined the faith of the household. This is why you find in, in the book of Acts, right, this idea of household salvation, that didn't just include the kids, the spouse and the kids. That meant All their servants as well. Why? Because he's the master of the house. And if the master of the house said we're following Christ, guess what? The whole household went to church. That became the faith. If the whole house, if the master followed pagan deities, right, and idols, the whole household, that's what they would be worshiping and doing as well. But we find here is that that some bondservants were coming to faith in Christ due to the witness of God's people in Ephesus, in the community, being out and about, right, on mission. And and some of them were coming to faith in Christ, independent of their masters. And those who began to treat their masters with disrespect would end up soiling the reputation of the church, soiling the reputation of the gospel and bringing reproach on the teaching of Christ. Think about it. If, if, you know, a, a master had a very profitable slave it was productive, and all of a sudden they became insubordinate and disrespectful. And these were now people professing this, this newfound faith, this new religion, worshiping Jesus Christ and calling him Lord. What would that master think? That's as a direct result of what they were doing, of that new faith that they were following. That's why they're being disrespectful. It would be, bring reproach on the Lord. It would blaspheme the name of God. Paul's pastoral exhortation ends up being a corrective against any Christian bond-serving adopting some type of insubordinate or disrespectful attitude towards their masters. Why? Because it could bring reproach on the gospel. Although the slave-master relationship was difficult and challenging, they are to continue to live by the rules of slavery in the Greco-Roman world. He's not giving them an out. 
He's not telling them, look, it's all changed for you now. That, that, he didn't have control of that. They didn't have control of that. But if they all of a sudden adopted an attitude of disrespect, well, think about what it did for the witness of the gospel in the world at that time. Interesting, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, in this writing to the church at Corinth, look, we're going to look at 20 through 24. Look at the exhortation for believers here. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were brought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Being in Christ does not suddenly release you from your obligation. For a slave to now come to faith in Christ did not automatically make them a freedman from the world's standards. In Christ they are. And if you were a slave owner or a freedman and you come to faith in Christ, well, guess what? You're no longer a freedman. You're now a bondservant of Christ Jesus. But he says here, let each of you remain wherever you were when you were called in the condition in which you were called. Because though you're not released from that obligation, what the gospel does, what coming to faith in Christ does is ennoble what you were to whatever station you are called to in life. Either slave or free man, we're all bondservants of Christ. And our work now takes on another focus. Our work now becomes something that is worship unto the Lord. That can be used to bring glory to God and certainly adorn the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So they are further obligated to be models of obedience. Because as they serve their master, ultimately who are they serving? They're serving Christ. They're serving the Lord. So Paul's concern in these instructions is with the church's evangelistic mission. They would not be hindered by disrespectful attitudes towards these uh, uh, social institutions uh, and that the intention of the gospel would not be misunderstood. Why? The gospel's at stake. Their, their situation's not going to change. They're still bondservants. But how they live that out can either bring glory to God and be a witness for Christ Jesus or it can bring reproach on the gospel. Writing in Titus chapter 2, the other pastoral epistle that we're going to be looking at soon, uh, verses 9 and 10 of Titus 2, he writes, Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, right? He's talking about conduct. He's talking about their behavior, how they are to uh, treat their masters and live under their authority and rule. Uh, But showing all good faith so that in everything, look, they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. A Christian slave's witness either adorned the gospel or brought reproach upon the gospel. They could make the teaching about God and of God more attractive by how they serve their masters, or they could make it detractive through their disrespect. That's the point here. That's what Paul is getting at there. 
I think you can already begin to see some applications for our lives here today, which we'll look at momentarily. Let's look at verse 2. Now he's going to address those who have believing masters, those who are in servitude to believing masters. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Okay? I know this is hard for us to go. They are slave owners that were Christians. Yes. In that culture, there certainly were. They were professing Christians even in the slavery of our history here in our nation who professed Christ, were, were considered God-fearing individuals who went to the church and were totally okay um, with owning slaves and even mistreating them and being cruel to them and seeing them as less than image bearers. Okay? Again, this is a little bit different here in terms of who these slave owners potentially were, uh, but that's the reality of what was happening here in that time. Um, it's likely, again, that some of the elders there at the church of Ephesus were also slave owners. We can't discount that, even though it doesn't explicitly state that here. Um, So because there were slaves and slave owners that were part of the church, there were probably high relational conflicts and tension in the church of Jesus Christ there at Ephesus. A lot of uh, stress and strenuous things happening in the relationships in the church. You had also false teaching uh, in the church at that time that the end was actually either near or had already taken place, right? So you can imagine a lot of the the slaves there were like, why are we even bothering with this anymore? Why do we need to obey, right? The end is near. Christ is coming, you know? It's kind of like back in the 80s with rapture fever. Christ is coming, and everyone's like, ooh, let me quit my job and relinquish all of my responsibilities and obligations and run to the hill and, and, and wait for him, the trumpet to sound and call me home. And here we are 40 years later. We're, we're waiting on the return of the Lord because that's not how a Christian's supposed to live, okay? Um, so that's it. You know, and, and especially this, this new teaching, right, that we're actually brothers in Christ, that there's no slave or free in Christ. We're one in him. Christ is the great equalizer. So who is this guy now to boss me around? And tell me what to do. All right, so all of that was taking place. So since Paul's reason for writing this letter is to instruct the church in the right conduct of believers in the church, these relationship issues, these relational issues had to be addressed. It's a pastoral concern, but it's also a gospel issue. The gospel is at stake. Paul writes that because masters are brothers in the Lord, they should not be shown less respect but more, but more. Because they are brothers, by virtue of being believers, he says they're also beloved, they're dearly loved. Slaves, Christian slaves, should serve them even better. Why? Because the ones that are the beneficiaries of their service are brothers in Christ Jesus. By you doing what you're supposed to be doing and doing it well, you are blessing a brother in Christ, even in that dynamic of slave and master. That's profound. That's unheard of even in that time. Even in that aspect of slavery in in that institution in the Greco-Roman world. 
What unites them in Christ is greater than whatever earthly entanglements they find themselves in. And it would be wrong for these Christian slaves to use what unifies them in the gospel as an excuse to disrespect them, their, their masters, and to uh, slack off in their work and to be lazy and neglect their obligations and their responsibilities. This eternal relationship bond sh- these bondservants share with their masters should stimulate them to greater service. So let's talk about masters for a moment. While Timothy, this, this letter of 1 Timothy does not address any instructions to masters, <clears throat> um, there are some clear exhortations in scriptures uh, as to how masters ought to be treating their slaves. Okay? They're not let off the hook, just because it doesn't say that here in this letter. There are serious implications for how masters were to treat their slaves. Let's look at Ephesians 6.9. Masters... Do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. Right? So Christian slave owners, as hard as that is for us to swallow, right? We're not to use the threat of punishment, and certainly we're not to physically abuse their servants. Because these slaves that served under them, were Christians. And that means they both have the same master, Jesus Christ. And they would have to one day give account to him who shows no partiality. Back in Colossians 4.1, he says, Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing you also have a master in heaven. So these slave owners were to treat their slaves knowing they're under the watchful eye of their master who's going to call them to account on on that day. So they need to treat their servants justly with equity and fairness. That's a big deal. That's unheard of even in that time. Okay, Um, So that's how the gospel um, implicates this slave-master relationship how it changes it. So when you have Paul bearing his heart out to Philemon and and saying, look how how he's a brother in Christ now. So when you receive him, you need to receive him just as if you were receiving me. That's how dramatically that relationship changes things. And though they're not released from their obligation, certainly, if one has definitely been transformed by Christ, you better believe that relationship would have looked different than it had before. Okay? So that's really important here. So what implications does that have for us? What application does that have for us? We've talked about it many times, especially when we're going through the series in Proverbs and looking at certain things. But how many employers are skeptical of hiring Christians or promoting Christians because of the poor example that many of them have been in the workplace? I remember as a manager, I had some great employees who were professing Christians. And boy, I had some who were just not great examples. They were lazy. They'd show up late. They didn't do a great job. They would take long breaks and lunches. And then they'd come back and tell me, oh, man, I was reading my Bible. I was in the car praying. I'm like, you jerk. You should have been at your desk working. That's what we're paying you to do. Praise God. You can pray on your lunch. But you got 30 minutes. 
can read the word on your break, but it's 15 minutes, you know. I expect you back at work because that's your obligation. That's your responsibility. So there are, you know, sadly Christians that have left a bad taste in the mouth of many employers because of the way they acted. But the reality is, is few Christians take into account how important their witness is in the workplace. What a big deal your witness is. So many times we detach uh, our work life from our faith. We act as if there's a sacred secular distinction where there is none. Our work is sacred because our work is worship. Okay? Work was created by God. Work is a gift God gave mankind. What? So that the, so that, so that, you know, uh, the world right, could be cultivated. It's an important aspect of what we do in humanity. So it's a good thing. Work didn't come after the fall. I know we treat it like that. Well, that's a curse of sin. No, it's not. Work was given to man before the fall, all right? Um, think about how we spend the better part of our waking hours and our lives at work. How much time of our life is devoted to work? It's really more than a third, huh? right? It's, it's a lot. If you work an eight-hour day, if you work a typical 40-hour work week, and even if you're a student, I'm gonna, if, even if you're in school, this applies to you as well. We spend an enormous amount of our life in those pursuits, in those endeavors in the workplace. And it is at our work where people get to truly see who we are and what we're made of. Right? In, the, in, in that cauldron of work, right? When, when you're in the midst of, of stressful situations and deadlines and upper management breathing down your neck and, and, a, and a project that has gone wrong or this is broken, right? And, 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 every, and all the tension is rising. How you react, how you respond in those moments, people get to see what you're really made of. And if you've got one of those big mouths who's always talking about Jesus and the church and God's word, and you're not a good witness, right? You're not adorning the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ and the doctrine of our God. You're presenting a poor witness, right, in all these things. Your workmates know you better than most people at church know you because that's where you spend an enormous amount of time with. You spend a lot of time with them. Many of you spend more time at work than you do with your family because you're there all day, okay? It's a big deal, right? That's why gospel sharing happens most at work because you're around a lot of people and some of you are around a lot of unbelievers. And if your life at work makes the gospel attractive, then you usually have an open door of gospel conversations. But if your life at work detracts from the gospel, well, then people will repudiate that gospel message. They won't want to hear it. You do not gain a hearing for Christ if your example at work does not reflect the values a Christian should espouse at work. Your work is your mission field. And this is what Paul is trying to drive home to the bond servants. What you do in servitude to your masters, that's your mission field. That's where the gospel should shine. Your life should be should make the gospel so attractive that they're going to, if they don't know Jesus, they're going to know what's up. Because maybe they weren't a profitable servant before, and now they're the best. Now they're productive. Now they're respectful. Now they're honoring. It's a big deal. So these instructions that Paul gives for how slaves are to work and respect their masters, uh, 
is important for us. It implicates our work. The gospel has transformed you. It's going to transform your work. Okay? There's no place in the Christian's, uh, Christian employee's life for insubordination. Whether subtle or outright toward his or her employer or supervisor or manager or director or VP. Can I hit you a little hard? I'm going to do it anyway, but thought I'd ask your permission. I want you to think about your work life in these moments. In your relationship to your superiors. How do you talk to them? How do you treat them? How do you respond to them? Do you have some kind of passive-aggressive contempt for them? In your interactions with them? Do you undermine their authority by gossiping with other coworkers about them? Or using mocking humor to make fun of them behind their backs? Every boss, every business owner, deserves a full day's work from every employee who professes to know Christ. Every one, regardless of how you're treated at work. Even if your boss is a jerk? Yeah, even if your boss is a jerk. Even if your manager doesn't know what they're doing? Yes, even if your manager doesn't know what they're doing. Even if I know more than my manager and can do their job better than they do? Yes, even if you know more than your manager or supervisor and can do a better job than they do. Even when my coworkers slack off and take long breaks and lunches? Yeah. Yes, 100%. Could you imagine if, if employers looked at the work ethic of Christians and, say, and said, that's the standard we want of every employee? Rather than, you're a Christian? Mm. Gosh, they take really long breaks. <laughs> There's always, they're always on the phone counseling somebody. Think about that. When we show up at work, as believers, we should be on. It's game time. It's the mission field. And we're living out our life before the watchful gaze of humanity. Many unbelievers who know, well, hopefully would know that you're a Christian. If they don't know you're a Christian, that's another sermon we'll have to unpack there. What does that mean? It means we don't steal time by slacking off means we don't engage in gossip, uh, office gossip or drama. It means we don't just do the bare minimum that's required of us. We go above and beyond. Why? First and foremost, because we're not working for them. We're not serving them. Ultimately, who are we serving? We're serving Christ. Is this how we serve Christ? Is that the best we give Christ? I'm going to give you the bare minimum. No, no, we, we, we're serving Christ. We want to be an example of, of, of someone who says, when I say I know Christ and you need to know Christ, they're going to look at your life and go, yes, I want to know that Christ. That's how it should be. We are working to please our Lord, not our earthly bosses, which is why Colossians tells us to work heartily as unto the Lord, because that is ultimately who we are working for. 
And when it comes to showing honor to your employer, boss, supervisor, director, the Bible does not grant any exceptions for bad or difficult work situations. Oh, but, but Dan, you don't know what I have to go through at work. I don't need to know. Because it doesn't matter. It's not that God is indifferent to your situation. It's not that God is overlooking an injustice that may be done to you. Because we've all suffered under the hands of bad supervisors and managers. I've got some stories for you. We've all have to deal with that. But is that an excuse and out for me not to present an attractive witness of Christ and his gospel and to serve God with all of my heart just because I may be mistreated or undervalued um, you know, by my workplace? No. 1 Peter 2.18, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Look what he says in verse 19. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Now, this is given to slaves, but how much more deeply does that apply to us who are free workers in the marketplace? We're, we're to work the same way, show respect to those who are in authority. Isn't it? It's a hard issue, isn't it? It's a matter of do, do I understand and respect authority? Right? We teach kids you need to be in, under the authority of your parents. That means you need to obey them in everything. Yet we want to be in our workplace where we are under authority. Our work is a type of servitude and our attitude is going to be, nope, mine going to be, no one can tell me what to do. That's a big problem. That's a spiritual problem. It's a gospel issue. It's a heart issue. Now there, we're to give our best hours, whether it's in the educational arena or corporate enterprise or local business uh, or some other entity, right? And we should be working unto the Lord. We should be serving those we are under with a heart for their success, whether they're believers or not. Again, Paul's telling those who have believing masters, here's why you need to do it all the more and serve all the better, because those are your brothers. And in their benefiting, you benefit. Okay? But we should be working with that same attitude for those that, we're, that we work for. Whether we're some high-level individual in a company, or we work in a fast-food restaurant, or we're going to school, wherever it is, we're in some type of servitude. Okay? We are. You're giving your best hours, right, uh, in exchange, your, your skills, your time, your abilities in exchange for a paycheck. And we, because we're doing it to the Lord, should be doing it with excellence to honor our God and to bring him glory. If you profess to follow Christ, you should honor your employers so that they can see the glory of God on display and the transforming power of the gospel fleshed out. You've heard this before. You are the first Bible most people will ever read. Before you even open your mouth about the gospel, you've already said a lot of things about the gospel, good or bad. Before you even tell someone about Jesus, they've already formed an opinion about Jesus by watching your life if you profess to know him and to know Christ, okay? Everything you do at work is a representation of your God and what you believe about God. So how are we to work? Diligently, productively. We're to work hard, right? Whether student or employee, because it's done to the glory of God. It's done unto the Lord. 
So think about yourself here. Do these positive aspects of how we are to work characterize your life at work? Do you work wholeheartedly as unto the Lord? Does your work adorn the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? What would your boss say about your gospel witness? What would your coworkers say about your gospel witness? Are you the kind of employee a company can't do without? Or are you the kind of employee a company would gladly do without? Consider that. In closing, our attitude and disposition of servanthood is something that makes us like Christ. The gospel reveals to us this awesome truth that our master, our Lord and master, became a servant. Philippians 2 tells us that this same Jesus, who is the fullness of God, the divine Lord of glory, and Colossians tells us, right, he's the preeminent one, the supreme one, the one who made all things and sustains all things and holds this universe together, took on the form of a servant, took on the form of a slave. And that servanthood is beautifully portrayed in the act we find of Jesus with his disciples as he wraps a towel around his waist and he stoops down to do the most menial of a task that a slave would do to wash his disciples' feet and to leave that for them as an example. And to say that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And that is the ultimate act of servanthood that we see displayed by our Lord at the cross. It's where he served weak, sinful, wretched sinners like us. Because our master became a servant to secure our salvation, what's our response but to gladly turn to him and become his servants? See, we're no longer slaves to sin. Because here's the reality. You're either a slave or servant to sin or you're a slave to righteousness and to Christ. Those are the only two conditions you will find yourself. Every human, everyone in humanity right now can be divided into those two places. You're either in Christ or apart from Christ. You're either a slave to Christ or you're a slave to sin. But because he did this for us, we can turn to him in all faith and assurance that we are his slaves, his servants, because he's freed us. And here's the beautiful reality. That's not only his, his only act of service to us. Our Lord continues to serve us even now. He provides us with the strength we daily need to serve him and to serve others. He provides for us everything we need to bring glory to Him in the work of our hands and with the fruit of our lives. He provides us with wisdom, all the wisdom we need to be excellent at our work because our work is worship unto Him and glorifies Him. He secures us by, He, he serves us by securing our salvation such that those who are truly His will cross the finish line. And he serves us in every way possible so that we can be productive servants for the glory of God.